Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Daniel Alemann. And my name is Anton Jäger. And today we're talking to Dr. Sophie Smith. Sophie is an Associate Professor of Political Theory in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford and a Tutorial Fellow at University College. She is also currently the Quentin Skinner Fellow at CRASH here at Cambridge and has just given a lecture on the nature of politics and the history of political thought. And we're very happy that she's here with us today. Thank you very much, Sophie. So I'd like to start out with a question about your own intellectual biography. So when and how did you first come to the study of the history of political thought? Well, thank you both for having me. I first studied the history of political thought here in Cambridge, in fact, uh, in the second year of my undergraduate degree, which was at that point in politics. And I did a paper on uh, sort of political thought from 1700 to 1890 with Richard Sargentson. And Richard was and remains one of the most extraordinary pedagogues I've ever met. And he just enthused me with this vigor for the topic that meant that in the next year, I took John Donne's Revolutions paper, a sort of famous paper that ran for years from the founding of what was then the SPS degree, right through until John's retirement. And I also took the earlier History of Political Thought paper with Annabel Brett. Um, and that combination of experiences uh, really sort of was transformative for me. John was so serious about the purpose of teaching the history of political thought and indeed of the university in general and managed to communicate that to a group of sort of slightly wide-eyed and bemused 20-year-olds. And Annabelle was just magically inspiring. Uh, her lectures on Aristotle just struck me as the cleverest things I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, and so that led me to feel that this was really what I, what I wanted to spend some time doing. So I switched into history, and, and that was when I was taught by Quentin Skinner, and I did his Hobbes seminar. So I think I'm actually the only person ever to have taken John Donne's Revolution seminar and Quentin Skinner's Hobbes seminar, uh, and I'm not sure after that I couldn't have not gone into the history of political thought. Um, then when did you first realize that you really wanted to pursue an academic career as such? Was that already clear for you at an early stage? And was there a particular experience that you would say was crucial in retrospect? Because you mentioned these specific lectures, you mentioned yeah. certain very prominent pedagogues. Well, it definitely wasn't clear to me from a young age. I, um, you know, we don't talk about this very much, but I didn't come from an academic background at all. And my, I mean, my mother is exceptionally smart and she did very well at school, but... Um, her parents' expectations, which were based almost entirely on her gender, uh, determined that university absolutely wasn't an option. And my father um, failed to distinguish himself at school at all and sort of left for the Navy with one A-level. So I was the first generation to go to university. And it really wasn't until I sort of had this mix of extraordinarily encouraging teachers. And in particular, I was just lucky enough to be at Cambridge at a time when there were women who were really inspirational teachers, Melissa Lane, Annabel Brett. Uh, and talking to them made me think I should pursue this. You eventually then started to undertake a PhD here at Cambridge, and you're currently turning this into a book under the title The Sphere of the City. 
And in 1588, the English Aristotelian philosopher John Case used that phrase to describe the space of human politics. Could you briefly explain what John Case meant by this and, and how this feeds into your story, the story that you want to tell? Yes, great. So, um, well, Case, when he titled his book, The Sphere of the City, The Spira Civitatis, was picking up on a theme that was absolutely sort of prevalent, not only in late Aristotelian commentary, but also in English political discourse. And that was the thought that the sort of object of the study of politics was this body called the city. And perhaps this body could be compared to a natural body and studied in a similar fashion. But it was also, for Case, part of the emergence of the serious study of politics in this country, um, at the universities, and also a sense amongst courtiers and what we might call sort of statesmen, Anthony Grafton and Lisa Jardine called men of action, that politics, as the Englishman would have called it, was a discipline to be studied and something to really be taken seriously and something for which we need new resources in order to do that work of taking it seriously. And Case undertook the task of showing how a mixture of Aristotle's politics and very many other both ancient and contemporary resources could do the work of helping these you know, new men of action think about the world in which they lived and perhaps the commonwealths, and this is where it starts to get a little suspect, the commonwealths that they may come to found in the new world, as they liked to call it. Democracy seems to be a key idea in this context And in a recent article, you show that a diverse range of Renaissance and early modern thinkers explored that question of what constitutes or makes a commonwealth through the lens of democracy. Why would you say it was democracy in particular that was such an appealing concept to think about the nature of the state? Mm, well, I mean, to be very clear, these authors weren't, uh, the ones I read anyway, weren't sort of suggesting that we all become Democrats. What they were interested in is, of course, Aristotle's account in book three of the politics, where he suggests that it might be possible that democracy is, under certain conditions, the best form of government. And Aristotle makes a very intriguing Well, he uses a very intriguing metaphor when he describes what emerges out of this coming together of a group of people, you know, none of whom are entirely without virtue or practical wisdom, is that they make a man. They make a kind of united being. And the Aristotelian commentators were fascinated by this metaphor and by the imagery of democracy with which, which Aristotle had provided them with. And they did all sorts of interesting things when they tried to think about this. And I have made the case that I think that Hobbes was well aware of this and he was interested in the ways that democracy was imaged and it suited his ends and it could be part of the story behind why uh, Hobbes was keen to point out that you know all states begin as democracies at least he was in the elements and equivae. So as mentioned earlier you currently have a position as an associate professor in political theory at Oxford and the question we really wanted to ask is if you've always been interested in doing both contextual historical work and combining it with more broader conceptual issues within contemporary political philosophy, whether that's always been an interest of yours? Yeah, I mean, it's a very easy answer. It absolutely has. And it was impossible, uh, really, for it not to be that way, given the, the teachers who uh, first taught me politics. You know, if I learned many things from John Brown, but one of them certainly was that it's 
pretty pointless activity to do political theory without any historical grounding. Um, and I think that he was absolutely right about that. So just to, to briefly follow up on this, so would you say you came to history from an interest in political theory rather than the other way around? Yeah, I definitely came to history from an interest in politics. And it was at a point where in Cambridge, if you really wanted to study the history of political thought seriously, you did that in the history faculty. I mean, that's no longer true in Cambridge because you can do both things extraordinarily well in both politics and history. Could you be a bit more specific on how you think a historical lens can illuminate contemporary issues in political theory? And we, of course, we can talk for hours and hours about this yeah. question, but I was wondering if you had any particularly very strong intuitions on this. Well, I think uh, one thing it can certainly do is show us that um, things are a lot harder than we think they are. So I suppose it imbues a sort of scepticism that I think is very useful when thinking about political action and political judgment. Now, of course, there are kind of common stories about what history can do for us. You know, if we think about things that Nietzsche has taught us, you know, about genealogy, that it can be vindicatory or it can be debunking, you know, it can make us suspicious of our beliefs or it can lead us really to valorize those beliefs. I think that, I mean, I've learned a lot from the philosophical work of Amir Srinivasan, who sort of teaches us, she's an epistemologist who works on genealogy and um, teaches us that, you know, the epistemology of this move is actually really very difficult to get right. Yet nonetheless, it's a really appealing intuition, isn't it? You know, when people find out the shady origins of their beliefs, it is destabilizing. But of course, we don't always think that shady origins should necessarily destabilize our beliefs. I am delighted that uh, women have available to them the contraceptive pill. And I'm no less delighted by that by learning that the contraceptive pill emerged out of experiments, you know, with eugenics, or out of that kind of eugenicist moment. I suppose the point is that thinking about this relationship is actually a very difficult task. Well, I'm delighted that the philosophers are doing the work. It's definitely somewhere we should be putting our attention and imaginations. So one of your interests is also the history of so-called ideal theory. First, could you very briefly explain what you mean by that? And secondly, do you think when people do ideal theory today, they should turn more to history when looking for future solutions? So when we use the phrase ideal theory today in political theory, what we're tending to mean is something associated with the philosophy of John Rawls. Right? So that specific phrase, ideal theory, conjures a kind of political theory that assumes that you know, the actors will indeed comply with the principles that are chosen. Um, and it also assumes a certain set of conditions that make it possible to pursue those principles. So for example, you know, we're not under conditions of such radical scarcity that, you know, there are people dealing with uh, starvation or what have you. So that's the sort of idealized aspect of it. Rawls, of course, called theory of justice a realistic utopia. The invocation of that word utopia is obviously trying to do some work there. He's connecting himself up to a long tradition of thinking about what you might call the ideal commonwealth. My work um, at the moment wants to trace that history and to show that right from the very first attempts to discuss, to define, to work out what it was to do political theory as opposed to any other way of thinking about politics, but to think about political theory was to think about 
the ideal commonwealth, and was to think about the kind of constraints that might be required for doing that sort of work, idealizing work. So one of the critiques of ideal theory that I have found particularly compelling, and it sort of comes from within the discipline of analytic philosophy, is Charles Mills's thought that ideal theory can function as ideology. So Mills accepts that it's possible that we might do this work that Rawls wants us to do of sort of um, working out a feasible utopia, if you like, a realistic utopia. But Mills goes on to say that Rawls's seeming lack of concern with implementation, with telling us how it is that we're meant to get there, we're meant to get to this so-called feasible utopia, leads us to a position where we have political theorists who tell us that what they're concerned with is, you know, the dramatic injustice with which, in which we find ourselves and with remedy injustice, and yet don't seem to do anything about it at all. And that, for Mills, is why ideal theory can function as ideology. And that, I think, is one of the critiques to which all of us who teach um, and indeed study ideal theory need to be particularly alert, because I think it's a good one. Following up to what you said in your lecture yesterday as well. So you seem to be speaking about the separation between political theory and political practice, mm -hmm. uh, political theory as a sort of professionalized academic uh, field. And I was wondering how you yourself feel about the institutionalization of this divide between theory and practice in politics. So how come we have people who study politics, don't necessarily think they're practicing it, but at the same time we have people who do politics, but maybe don't do enough theoretical self-reflection. So how does your work situate yourself vis-a-vis -vis that specific divide? I feel quite depressed about it in some contexts, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, you know, in my own university, we teach our first year as a course called An Introduction to the Theory and Practice of Politics. And I'm not sure currently we do enough to show our undergraduate students quite what the connection between those two things is. And I worry that that leads to not seriously engaging with quite how difficult it is to do that work of, if you like, bringing theory into practice. Or indeed, what we do is instantiate a binary that we might want to do more work to deconstruct. It's not always clear to me that it's a good way of thinking about politics, to think that we can separate those two things out as neatly as we do. As for your question about possible remedies, well, look, I think this is where history comes in. And I think We certainly do need to teach a lot more history because what you learn, if you learn anything from studying the history of politics and the history of political thought and action, is precisely um, what it means for people to try and put theory into practice, if you like, and precisely how messy and complicated the political world is and why thinking about the relationship between theory and practice as one of mere application is to do a lot of question begging, actually. One other project that you're currently involved in is that you're preparing a volume together with Katrina Forrester on political thought and the environment. This sounds like a really innovative project that might open up a lot of new vistas for intellectual historians and political theorists alike. Could you perhaps offer us a brief glance at some of the questions that the contributions to this essay collection seek to investigate? 
I mean, this this volume, I suppose, is in some ways an answer to your question about what the possible relationship between history and political theory could be. I mean, that's one of the questions Katrina and I were trying to answer in the very specific context of thinking about not only environmental issues broadly, but the specific challenges of climate change. Because, of course, a number of the challenges that climate change raises, political theoretical challenges, issues of negligibility and free riding on the one hand, of scarcity of use of resources, um, of humans' relationship, not only with animals or other animals, I should say. I really dislike the phrase non-human animals, <laughs> um, but um, the animals with whom we share the planet and the land. These have, uh, there's a long tradition of thinking about these themes in the history of political thought, which is a, a slightly different discipline, if you like, from thinking about the history of specifically environmental thought. So Katrina and I thought we could sort of bring this to bear on these questions that animate um, some climate change debates. And we managed to convince a sort of all-star array of historians and historians of political thought and intellectual historians to either to contribute pieces that they were already working on or or to turn their minds anew to these questions. Um, And we're really excited to see it out in the world. So we have one last question, which is a bit more about the disciplinary bounds of the field in which we're currently operating. So our podcast does have the name intellectual history, not simply political thought or history of political thought. So I was wondering whether you find it useful to draw a distinction between intellectual history and the history of political thought and how you yourself feel about that distinction in the first place. (laughs) <laughs> this distinction is something seem, uh, people seem to worry about an awful lot and just doesn't bother me at all. Uh, you know, I think for some people, you know, the emergence of the history of political thought is, of course, itself a historical phenomenon that many excellent scholars, not least Samuel James in this university, are studying and, and writing fascinating pieces on. But in terms of how I self-fashion, I think I use the tools of the intellectual historian. I don't merely study political texts when I'm thinking about how to make sense of the works I read. But insofar as the you know title historian of political thought designates anything specific, I suppose it at least designates the thought that it might be worth doing the history of political thought if we want to think about contemporary politics. And I suppose I do have those commitments. And I suppose they are commitments that not all intellectual historians share. But really, on the whole, I I just don't find myself worrying about it too much. Okay, fantastic. So, Sophie, thank you for this very stimulating conversation and for everyone at home actually tuning in. And we'll, of course, be back with a second episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast, very soon. And thank you. Thank you for having me.